This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, you're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. Patrick Maguire with you for one final time before Matt Chorley returns from his extended break. Today's big thing was about Philip Larkin at 100 and what England's favourite poet can tell the country about its politics and sense of self. But before that, I did my columnist panel. It's a Friday, so it's Melanie Reid and James Forsyth. James, your column this morning, as with so many in The Times... Uh, on Liz Truss's tax plans and the economic Armageddon to come doesn't exactly make for cheery reading, but, I mean, it's an important subject that we'll be discussing lots and lots over the course of today in Times Radio. What do you what do you make of it, then? Because I think last night's Sky debate was the first in a while that the two have been unable to escape proper scrutiny of their plans on the economy. And given that Rishi Sunak also was considered by the audience to win, your column seems a little bit timely that you're arguing that Liz Truss's tax proposals are going to come back to bite her in the end, as unpopular, as popular rather, as they are among Tory members. Yeah, look, I think the challenge is this. I think that given what is coming down the track in terms of energy prices this autumn, that is what voters are going to want, want to know about. Uh, and I think if you have an emergency budget that is clearer on... Uh, what you're going to do about the tax that businesses pay on their profits when it is on the help you're going to give households with their energy bills, I think that would be a, a, a political misstep. And I think this is one of the dangers. It's that, that Liz Truss talks a lot about... Oh, I think we've... Oh, sorry, we've got you back, James. Sorry, you just cut out for a little bit there. Yeah, sorry. But that she talks a lot about how her tax cuts fit within this £30 billion of headroom that the government... Um, uh, supposedly has, which I think ignores the fact that a huge chunk of that headroom is going to end up having to go on supporting households with their energy bills. And if it doesn't, then I think the government will be in a very, very difficult political position. Yeah, so you think, and as uh, Ian Martin, another Times columnist, argued in the paper earlier this week, do you think it's now inevitable that whoever's Prime Minister is going to have to uh, eat their words on especially Rishi Sunak's on not being able to help people with absolutely everything and immediately, almost immediately, come with a big bailout package for households? 
Well, I don't think they're going to be able to help people with absolutely everything, but I think they will have to help people with their energy bills because the rise is going to be so dramatic. And I think if you think back to when that package was announced back in May, the assumption was that the rise in the energy price cap in October at that point, people thought the rise might be as little as £200 from where it was before. It is now clearly going to be much, much larger than that. And not only that, uh, if you look at the if you look at the kind of the figures, that suggests that energy bills are going to stay at the energy price cap is going to stay at over three thousand pounds for over a year. Uh, and and I think in those circumstances, I don't see how you don't offer households more help. Melody, what do you think? What if are you looking forward after uh, yesterday's uh, you know bout of miserable announcements on the economy? to your gas bill because given you're in scotland i imagine it's already uh, through the roof uh, you, well I, yeah i have i have oil because i'm too far away from oh, mains wow. gas but uh so i'm i'm, I'm basically we'll just freeze because uh, we won't run it so what, um, what what is what is the cost of uh, uh of, of oil for oil heaters at the minute is that going <sighs> through the roof as well just filled up a tank um uh, which was about a thousand pounds to fill up to fill up the the oil the oil tank to and, fuel the and how long would that last you? Well, if I I will scrimp and save and, and shut it off and I'll make everyone freeze so might get it to last until the turn of the year, but uh, you know uh, I'll get a lot of nagging for that. But, um, it'll have to be done. Uh, you know I I and, and but you know. I, I can't complain. I, I'm 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 relatively comfortable, and the people I, I. But I have a lot of contact with people, the people who make the world go round, mm. carers, carers and nurses, and uh, you know, in the care industry, you earn ten pounds an hour, and if you're looking at thirteen percent inflation, and you're heading for massive electric, uh, massive massive uh, prices in in, in uh, increases in in your fuel bills. Um, it, it, it's going to be ruinous. I mean, how, how if you if you are on ten pounds an hour, um, and you're heading for a drop in real income, you know, which is up, it could be up to three percentage points. What on earth are those people going to do? It's 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 um, fuel poverty is 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 a terrible thing. And it's a particularly uh, iniquitous kind of inflation. This. Uh, inflationary surge because it's being driven primarily by the price of food and the price of energy. And if you're spending most of your income on food and energy anyway, then you're inevitably going to be hit more hard. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, you know the, these these are primal things. These are not these are not luxuries. These are not you know fifty screen tellies and and, and all the terrible things that, that people say about uh, about poor people. They're not they're not sort of wasting their money. It's 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 the the fuel of life. Uh, it's how to exist, and uh, it is going to put terrible strain on on communities. On it's the guy from the the ONS was speaking about on 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 the disabilities, people on ben- benefits and pensioners, not not wealthy pensioners, not 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 the members of the Tory party who are, who are voting for the new leader, but for the for the um, <laughs> you know the ones who don't have a voice at the moment. Um, and I, I, yeah, it's going to be grim, and I, I do worry about it. I, you know, when they're talking about talking about blackouts this winter, we're talking about six point five million people on the NHS waiting list, and you know, it, we really need we really need a grown up in charge. Um, we really do. Well, J- James, a question that lots of Tory MPs are asking is, shouldn't the Bank of England have moved quicker? Do you also think they need to? 
ask that question of themselves, or at least cabinet ministers need to ask that question of themselves, because it wasn't that long ago, you'll remember, at uh, that conference, Tory conference, last September, October, Boris Johnson was talking about how he wanted Britain to be a high-wage economy. And when people said, well, what about inflation? He was speaking as if inflation was something everybody had forgotten about. So do you think both the bank and perhaps uh, Conservative politicians have been slow to wake up to the coming storm? Look, I think inflation had been so low for so long that, you know, Boris Johnson's answer in that in that interview with Beth Rigby was he said, look, you know, we've heard so many predictions of inflation going up and it hasn't happened. Well, it now has happened. And I think one of the, 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 the things that I think is, you know, there was so much horror in what the Bank of England said yesterday. I think we can miss this very important point is that inflation in the third quarter of next year is still going to be nine and a half percent. And I mean, that, 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 that is hugely important because when it comes to below inflation increases for public sector workers, it would be one thing if you were asking them to take a below inflation uh, pay rise and that inflation was going to get out of a system in, in three months or six months. Given how long it is going to be in the system, I think politically that is, is going to be more difficult to defend. I, I think on the Bank of England, I think it is worth saying one thing, which is I think they could have raised rates earlier. But I think that the primary driver of inflation is what is happening with energy prices. So I think the idea that we wouldn't have inflation at this level um, if the bank had raised rates earlier, I think is slightly dubious. I also think this, which is there is a point which about that politicians need to be careful about, which is the Bank of England has not got everything right. But I think that politicians arguing with the in, or criticising the independent central bank is potentially one of those things that can really upset markets. And I think you have to be careful about how you talk about that. Because, you know, if you suggest that you're going to start um, uh, giving the bank a kind of mechanistic mandate, uh, I don't think that will be popular. And I think it is also one, just one other remarkable thing from the banking yesterday, is the bank have calculated that the shock to households from the current energy price spike is five times what it was from the oil shock of the 1970s. I mean, that gives you a, an idea of the magnitude of this problem. Well, indeed, and it's a. You talk about the 70s. I remember that cabinet meeting where Boris Johnson looked at his cabinet. He's one of the, he was he was one of the oldest people in his own cabinet, indeed is, and said, "How many of you remember the 1970s when?" And that was the political context where. Mrs. Thatcher and and her cabinet were, were dealing with, and that was the in keeping inflation though was the was the prime concern, wasn't it? Yeah, and I mean, that, that, I mean, this is going to be there. That, you know, there has been a big part of the debate in this Tory leadership contest has been about you know what do you do about you know, which 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 is more important, controlling inflation or going for growth? Uh, and the two candidates have, have have very different views on that question. Um, and, and I think this is. I think that I think one of the other things that, that, that Melanie said, which talked about blackouts, which is so right, all of these things that we have all taken for granted, that there is always going to be enough energy. I think all of those could end up being shaken this winter. Well, that's something to look forward to. Speaking of the 70s, another uh, landmark year was 76 and the drought. And that's another thing that's coming back to haunt us ever so slightly this year in Hosepipe bans coming into force today in the south, in the southern water region in Hampshire and the Isle of Wight. Melanie, I can't imagine your hosepipe gets a massive workout given that the amount of rainfall you're getting in in, uh, in Scotland. No, I, I mean, we're, we're you know, very lucky. It's been quite wet here, several heavy, heavy rain several times this week. East of Scotland is very dry. I live in the west. 
but the east of Scotland is very dry. The farmers are having to feed their their their, their animals. The beasts that are out in the fields are having to get hay because the grass has stopped growing. Um, reservoirs in Scotland are about eighty one percent. So so you know we're okay at the moment, uh, though a lot drier than we normally are. Uh, it, it, it is in the south where it's where where most people live, where the huge percentage of population is, and that's where it's critical and and. Um, the hosepipe ban is eminently sensible. Uh, I, I, I must admit to a, a quiet sort of smile at the thought of, of, of neighbours um, neighbors breaching, uh, breaching hosepipe bans. And Grassing on each other's neighbours, that's what people have been encouraged yeah. to do, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 does, it does raise the, the, you know, the prospect of sort of hosepipe rage and neighbourhood disputes, which can be funny, can be nasty. Um, I personally, I don't know about James... But I personally would report someone immediately. I wouldn't hang about. I would be really quite vindictive about it. Well, well James, James, would you if you saw someone, uh, you know, wantonly using a sprinkler in your next door garden? Um, I, I, I must admit, I wouldn't. I also think, isn't it going to be quite obvious? He's got a kind of luscious green lawn at the end of the summer. <laughs> and not the parched yellow <laughs> sort of... Uh... It's, it's, not, it's not exactly going to be subtle if you've kind of maintained your your lawn looks like something out of a catalogue while everyone else is, is a kind of uh, dry, dusty bowl. Um, so, no, but I mean, I, I, I think, I don't know, I, I, kind of, I, I think this is an interesting question. I mean, we haven't yet... I mean, again, we haven't got to the point of people kind of bailing out their bath water to put it on their plants. I mean, but, but you know, but all of these things we, we might well end up going back to. That, that's a good idea. I mean, I don't even think people should be having baths. They should be showering, you know, and there should be no hot tubs. I, I, honestly, I'd be very, very hard line about this. No should, hot tubs. They should make no, you uh, energy secretary, Melanie. Yeah. <laughs> no paddling pools. You see, I lived through the 70s. I'm good at austerity. Um, uh, I, you know, it, it's um, all swimming pools should be should be banned. Private swimming pools, you know, and save water in the house. Collect the cold water before the hot water runs through. These are these are old skills. Which so, I someone in the treasury is trying to write all of this down as we speak, <laughs> frantically. I hope they've got I hope they've got good shorthand. James, I just want to before before I let you both go, James. I just wanted to sort of reflect on this. You're talking about you were talking about earlier the energy crisis of the early seventies and and the oil shock, and you know, you look at the governments here in power then, regardless of where they were, and all of them, you know, Ted Heath was one. Uh, they, they lost office. They yeah. lost office, yeah. Gerald Ford was another in America. You know, do you think that is now almost inevitable for whoever takes office? I, I, I do think things in politics are inevitable. And I mean, there is there is an element here that because things are going to be bad everywhere, that, you know, that, that, that it won't be like Britain, is, that, that Britain won't look like the sick man of Europe because everyone is everyone will be struggling with, with these same problems. But I think it is also true that when inflation is high, politics is scratchy mm. and um, governments find it much harder to get re-elected. I mean, this is the, the. I think if you can't get a grip on inflation, sorry, if you can't control inflation, then I think it will be very, very hard for any government to get to get to get re-elected. Um, and I think that you know, I, I think that if you look at the polls at the moment and kind of combine that with where politics appears to be heading you know i think you probably you know the tory party would be doing very well to avoid uh what you might call an anti-tory majority in the, in the next parliament so so not a labor majority but you know a combination of other parties 
basically united by a desire to keep the Tories out. Well, it's a good job Labour and the Liberal Democrats have such charismatic, uh, inspiring leaders, isn't it? And you can, of course, read James and Melanie every week in The Times. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Now, time for our big thing on Philip Larkin at 100. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at LutonRising.org.uk. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Now, he is arguably this country's greatest ever poet, and if not that, certainly its favourite. He's also one of its most unapologetically and unfashionably political. So, a hundred years to the week since Philip Larkin was born in Coventry, what does his poetry and his popularity tell us about Britain? That was Larkin reciting I Remember, I Remember, a reflection on his hometown and the man he had become just one of many poems to capture Larkin's wistful, reactionary view of provincial England and Englishness at a time of tumultuous social and political change. He wrote from the periphery of the country, in Hull, the sort of post-industrial place that now looms very large indeed in our politics. So what lessons can we draw from Larkin at 100? The former poet laureate Sir Andrew Motion worked with Larkin at the University of Hull, where he was the librarian. He was also his biographer. I spoke to him earlier and asked how he would describe Larkin's politics. There are really two parts to that answer, I think. The first is perhaps to say a little bit about how I knew him in the last 10 years of his life. Um, as everybody who's interested in him knows, he was the university librarian in Hull for the last 30 years of his life. And I went to teach in the English department at Hull in the mid-1970s. And out of that <clears throat> knowing and the friendship that it evolved into... I then became one of his literary executors and, the, and was asked to, to write the biography. I was aware of him uh, having a, a very sort of defiant political dimension to his personality during the 10 years or so that I, that I knew him. 
bear in mind this is now quite a long time ago and coincided with Mrs Thatcher's heyday, if that's quite the word for it. Mm. And as everybody, again, who's interested in him knows, he was the most devoted admirer of hers in a way which can sometimes, when he's talking about her in his letters, sound a little bit self-mocking, but I think was genuine enough, in fact. And alongside that, um, I'm not imputing these same things to her, a range of prejudices really is the the only word for them, I, I think, which have caused a good deal of stir in the years since his death when they came to light, the, the racism and and so on. During the course of our friendship, I discovered very early on that his political beliefs and mine were not the same. So to the extent that we did have a friendship, it was a friendship which had holes in it because um, the friendship would not have been able to survive, I think, the, the kind of clash of our beliefs if we'd gone at them uh, with any degree of sincerity. So we simply steered around certain subjects. My feelings are not his feelings about politics. I don't vote in the way that he voted. Um, and I feel differently about the range of other things that we've hinted at in what we've so far said. He did have friends with whom those things were explicit. It's pretty clear that he talked about them a good deal in the letters with Kingsley Amis, for instance. But by and large, his sense of the explosiveness of his own beliefs was more or less confined during his lifetime to conversations with people whom he expected to, to agree with about those things. After his death, of course, that picture changed very dramatically. Um, first with the publication of his letters and then I suppose to the publication of my biography, which made clear to people who weren't in his inner circle, as it were, what these beliefs were. And as you're hinting in your question, these have, have led to all kinds of realignments in his readership and different ways of, of thinking about the poems. What he would think about politics now is hard to say. I've often asked myself whether he would have voted for Brexit, for instance. My instinct is to feel that he would have done. And yet at the same time, he's he was also somebody who had a pretty good weather eye for practical things and I think he would have sensed some of the practical difficulties which the country is now experiencing as a result of Brexit. So I don't feel 100% sure in saying that he would have voted for, for Brexit, though I don't have much doubt in saying that he would have stayed within the fold of the Tory party. And, it, and it's interesting hearing you talk about his defiance and the defiance in his political views when you mm. set them against the often you know, academics and academia can be can lean in a particular direction, shall we say. There was a, there was always a sort of iconoclastic bent, and you get that in the stridency of his letters. But when you compare that to the England he evokes Absolutely. in his poems, there's a much more wistful quality, the sense of something Absolutely. passing, I, isn't there? Quite right. No, I, I deeply agree with that, and I think that's a very important thing to get clear about this. I mean, the, the conversation about his politics certainly needs to take place, and it will go on for as long as people are continuing to talk about him, and so it should. Um, and I don't think that people should pull their punches in, in describing what they feel about those things. But at the same time, it would be a pity, to put it mildly, if the, and this of course applies to any writer or any person who makes things, it would be a pity if our account of the, the as it were, the personal life, even though that personal life might contain public facing uh, expressions, it would be a pity if that not page life were made complete account of what happens on the page. Yeats tells us, doesn't he, that out of the quarrel with others, we make rhetoric, out of the quarrel with ourselves, we make poetry. 
Um, and I think that remark can be very interestingly applied to Larkin, whom it seems to me is often in his poems trying to either get away from being Philip Larkin or at least to moderate what it is like being Philip Larkin. In other words, the poems are not simply and merely straight transcriptions of personality. They have all the modifications, alterations, adjustments, etc., that um, you would expect art to, to include. And what you've just said about the presentation of England in terms of landscape and social composition is true of that, I think, as we as we see it in the poems. Quick, quick example of what I'm talking about here. I think that one of his best known poems, The Wits and Weddings itself, which is also, of course, the title of one of his books, includes a lot of descriptions of other people, the wedding parties that he sees on the platforms of the various stations that his train drives through um, on its way from Hull down to, to London. And I have sometimes seen people describe his attitude to, towards those people. Success so huge and wholly farcical, the women shared the secret like a happy funeral. Girls gripping their handbags tighter stared at a religious wounding. The people in their, their variously coloured clothes, the fathers with broad belts under their suits and seamy foreheads, mothers loud and fat, the uncles shouting smut and so on. All those things could be seen, I suppose, as evidence of him looking down his nose at the rest of the world. Actually, I think within the paradoxically novelishly expansive world of this poem, there are actually signs of his interested, yes, sometimes amused, but definitely not scornful attitude towards people who are not like himself. In fact, the poem seems to me in those respects a very interesting example of his inclusiveness. I think it's very interesting, Sanjay Motion, you talk about his perhaps discomfort with himself and you know, perhaps his politics was also a symptom of a certain discomfort. Going, going is another poem, you know, that will be England gone, it will linger on in galleries, but all that remains will be concrete right. and tyres. Right. To what extent, though, do you think Philip Larkin, being a provincial man, being from Coventry, spending much of his life working life mm -hmm. in Hull, also going to, to Belfast? Mm -hmm. And I think it was you who mm -hmm. wrote recently that his sister Kitty had a thick Coventry accent that he bore no, right. bore no trace of. This concept is in vogue now, the concept of levelling up, the concept of regional inequality and regional identity. Sure, sure. How much of that was a driver of how Larkin saw England, the world, the literary establishment and his place in it? That's a, also a very interesting question. I doubt very much for the um, concept such as levelling up. Crossed his mind. Registered, would have crossed his mind. But I, but I absolutely think that he felt that living at a slight angle to the establishment um, in these, in the case of Hull, certainly quite remote provincial places, gave him a, a kind of perspective on life in general, which he found indispensable to the kind of poems that he wanted to write. Um, he didn't want to live among loud noises and sort of centrist activities of one kind or another. He wanted to stand back, survey what was going on, as writers very often do, and create a kind of democracy of vision in the poems, which I think is there for, for all to see still. And and just finally, Sir Andrew Motion, before I let you go, you worked in a university with Philip Larkin. How do you think he would cope on a modern campus? Pretty much as he did on the campus in those days, I think, which was by turning off his hearing aid at crucial points. <laughs> <laughs> and drinking heavily in the evenings, no doubt. <laughs> drinking heavily in the evening, right. Well, that was the former poet laureate and friend of, of Philip Larkin, Sir Andrew Motion. Well, I'm joined in the studio now by the Times' own James Marriott, columnist and Philip Larkin superfan, I think it's fair to say. Morning, James. Very fair to say. Good morning. 
And joining me on the line is the award-winning poet and chair of the Royal Society of Literature, Daljit Nagra. Morning, Daljit. Morning. Hi, Patrick. Uh, thanks very much for joining us both. Delgic, let me start with you because the tone of this conversation so far, I've spoken to uh, you know Andrew Motion, who is a, a friend and admirer of Philip Larkin, but aware of his foibles. And, and listeners who only know the man's poetry may not be aware that when his letters were published, his private correspondent was published, it revealed a, a raft of reactionary views on, on politics. He was an unapologetic right-winger. He was a, a massive fan of Margaret Thatcher. You read his letters, especially to Kingsley Amos, the novelist with whom he'd been at university and they're all about uh you know attacking the reds as he called it slagging off the sdp uh you know slagging off women uh lots of sexist views but also most troublingly unapologetic and straightforward racism what does this tell us about you know larkin's vision of of england because in the poets in the poems it's wistful but privately, it was a much harsher view of the world, wasn't it? Yeah, that's quite a brutal summing up you gave then. Doesn't <laughs> doesn't offer him in his best light. Um, yeah, his private life is hard hitting, and as you said, his look on Britain is wistful, nostalgic. So he has a very passive appreciation of Britishness. He seems to want a Britain which is all white, or that fantasy of all whiteness. Um, so to me, he, he doesn't offer a positive view of the future in terms of politics. I think his politics is quite naive in that he has that nostalgic look. And also when he writes about um, people in Britain, often he's quite derogatory about working classes, Andrew Motion's mentioned and yourself mentioned. Um, and he, he doesn't offer a corrective of how politics could help those sort of people, those lives. He just wants to dismiss them. Sometimes he's affectionate, but only in passing. But more often, he's looking down at these people. So I think, I think for me, um, you have to, like a lot of writers in the past, because our, our values, our tastes are different now to, mm. to the past, you have to hold two things separate, the, the poet Larkin and the person Larkin. And, you know, I, I, the poetry of his I like best is the stuff that, where he explores ideas about death and how we're going to die, and he articulates that very well and there's other themes that he doesn't articulate as well I think so you know Obard is a great poem and there's occasional really positive upbeat poems such as Church Going, The Trees, well Church Going isn't that going but Arundel too which are really beautiful and um, worth coming back to. Well before before I go to James let's hear a bit of Obard shall we? James Murray you're in the studio you're listening to that you've listened to what Dalgit just said you wrote a piece in the Times recently uh, readers can pick it up in the paper tomorrow. It's already online about Larkin at 100 and your personal take on his poetry, which you know and love. But, you know, you listen to verses like that on that grapple with the most fundamental questions about, you know, the self, mortality, etc. You know, reading them and enjoying them in 2022, do you find it difficult to separate them from the Larkin of the letters, the, you know, racist drunkard, basically? Um, I, I don't. I mean, I think, unfortunately for me, I just, I love Larkin so much and have loved him for so long. As soon as I kind of start reading a Philip Larkin poem, everything else just kind of, just kind of goes away. I think everything Dalgit said was true. And I think actually, thinking about it before I came in, one of the slightly troubling things is that I'm not, it's always difficult when you think about it, how far you can actually separate, in Larkin's case, the politics from the poetry, because this kind of, this sort of everyman persona in his poetry, the real pessimism, the total refusal of idealism, often until the very last minute when he kind of dramatically squeaks out a tiny little drop of hope or sort of a visionary image at the end of a poem. I think all that is to do 
with um, the same sort of persona that informed his politics, which is completely unidealistic, a sort of uninformed, slightly philistine everyman. And I just think these things are kind of the persona that kind of powers the poems is also the same place where the horrible stuff in the letters comes from. And it's all, unfortunately, on a continuum. So as much as it, you know, when you're reading a kind of wonderful Philip Larkin poem, you kind of, you can maybe forget that. They're not actually separable, I don't think, if that makes sense. Mm. Do, you, do you buy that? Because there, there often is a flash of optimism, even at the end of the the poems that exhibit the qualities that you talk about. You know, the Whitson Weddings is often cited, Andrew Motion was talking about in our previous interview, as evidence of his sort of snobbery, his mean-spiritedness, but then you have that beautiful couplet at the end, you know, somewhere becoming somewhere becoming rain. Do you agree do you agree with James that you can't actually really divide the locking of the letters and the locking of the poems? I think it depends on how, how committed you are to Larkin. So many people in Britain just love him unconditionally, and that's fine. Um, and then, you know, people like myself, I, d- I do see flashes of brilliance in, you know, wits and weddings, and I can almost forgive the snobbery against the the people on the train, the working class people in the weddings, because I think, well, in a sense, that is true to life. I just wish he could offer a more positive vision of working class people, be more hopeful about them. And so... I think that the mastery, the classicism of his writing is to be admired, the craftsmanship. But if you, if you take all his work as a whole, it's very narrow range. You know, he's often talking about what's the point in getting married? What's the point in having children? We're going to die. And intermit- intermittently, you get those kind of more upbeat poems, like broadcasts, where he imagines listening to radio broadcasts and he- hearing this feelings woman's glove her hand. And some beautiful moments such as those. So you can kind of bypass some of it but it, it, it takes an act of effort I would say to separate the racist sexist probably homophobic and the full range of things ableist um, issues that he had um, with the work it does require a bit of work but I think it requires that sort of work with so many other authors down the, the British canon there are many of them who mm. the letters have written really horrible stuff and I guess Malarkin had that poem, uh, which is published in the American Collective, I think it's out in Britain now as well, you know, about the, how to win an election. And, he, he, you know, it's a poem written in mid-40s, and he does say really nasty things about basically wanting to see working classes killed. Talk to bring, bring back the cat and nine tails, you know, racist epithets about uh, people of colour in there as well. It's, it's pretty, uh, pretty intense stuff, isn't it, James Marriott? Um, do you, do you, you know, that, that sort of pessimism, you know, listening to Dalgic there talking about don't get married, what's the point of uh, having children? Uh, you know, I'm never going to find uh, purpose in life. Reminds me of your column from yesterday about why uh, young people are so despairing. Do you think Larkin has a new relevance, that sort of nihilistic spirit in our age of, uh, you know, economic economic divisions, etc.? Yeah, I, certainly. I mean, his his idea about England was very was was very pessimistic. I mean, we might not be pessimistic for the same reasons, um, but yeah, I think certainly if you're kind of feeling, um, yeah, if you're sort of feeling pessimistic and hopeless, Larkin, Larkin is the poet. Although the, the the piece I wrote about him, I wanted to kind of slightly say that maybe he wasn't always the pessimist that he was that he was thought to be, and I think the kind of the really sort of the the kind of amazing and wonderful fight in his poems is between this kind of really slightly bleak pessimism and the fact that in spite of all this i think he still thinks you know there are things that are beautiful and he still thinks there's kind of hope and i don't think it's straight i don't think it's as straightforward to say that he's pessimistic or that even the things that seem bleak he thinks are without beauty and often the really kind of wonderful thing about his poems is the way that you know that you know they're often kind of portraits of these shattered and disappointed lives but within 
that very disappointment, that's kind of what's beautiful to Larkin. And I think the whole sort of Larkin was a pessimist thing, I I, I always think oversimplifies it because I think he was actually a much more kind of complicated, interesting, and yeah, that that doesn't sum it up for me really. Well, the one that always stays with me, be, precisely because it's so unlarkin. If we, you know, think he, of the miserable librarian sat with his hearing aid off in Hull and then, you know, retreating to having worked all day, as that that line Norbard says, to to get half drunk at night in his in his flat in Hull. It's the poem uh, about the lawnmower in which he kills a hedgehog and, you know, feels distraught and says, you know, we must be kind and good to each other while there's still yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, if you want to look at Larkin's political legacy and you want to find something positive to say, he was very into animal rights. Uh, he wrote a furious poem about... Uh, vivisection about vivisection i think just a little thing in one of his letters um he was a member of the rspca he was writing letters to the times protesting about animal rights so i mean it's probably a slightly kind of against all the other stuff it's probably a tiny little pebble in the scale but i guess you know that's something positive for his political legacy He was very pro animals well let's listen to the whitson wedding shall we given that we've just been discussing it that's clearly you know as we've discussed a, a very wistful view of england dalgit Larkin is still evoked by politicians today. Uh, Nadim Zahawi, the Chancellor, when he was Education Secretary, tweeted just after Larkin, I think, was uh, among English poets removed from the national curriculum by one exam board, not removed from the national curriculum, but removed from the GCSE syllabus, rather. He tweeted that Larkin taught me so much about my new home. Do you, um, you know, would you recommend Larkin to people newly arriving in England as uh, Nadim Zahawi would? Yeah, I'd say go and read his letters first. And this is the kind of British arrival you're going to get in certain areas if you end up in the wrong place. Um, yeah, <laughs> I find that quite amusing, Zadari's uh, comments. So, I mean, I'm from a migrant background. Our sensibility was to, to work hard and get on and contribute to society. And for me, the, the kind of larking, almost this kind of super privileged world is of a kind of general gloom and apathy and I so I don't really buy into that sensibility that Larkin offers I do buy into the fact that we're going to die I do buy into the trees how he says how they refresh themselves every year so those moments of brilliance as, as we've all mentioned um, but I mean can I just also mention I've got I, I run a, a radio uh, program on Radio 4 Extra Poetry Extra and this Sunday we're going to feature quite a few poets who talk really lovingly about Larkin. So there is, I know we've been overly gloomy about him, but there is this other side to him, I guess we, we sort of neglect. Douglas Dunn, Paul Farley and Andrew Motion again, they all talk really affectionately about what great company he was, what a humorous person he was. So I, I still hope that he would have been persuaded over time to embrace the multicultural nation that was engulfing him. And that's, that's the interesting thing, isn't it, James? The idea of Philip Larkin, and Andrew Motion touched on, this while I was speaking to him earlier, would Philip Larkin have voted for Brexit? And in a way, like all of us, if an archaeologist, you know, dug up Philip Larkin's letters, you know, one of those nice bound hardback volumes edited by Anthony Thwaite, he'd find, he, they'd be baffled that this, these were all letters from the same person because you have this sort of blasts of juvenile, uh, puerile humour to Kings the Amis. You have very sweet letters to other friends and love interests and, you know, acquaintances, professional acquaintances. So he contained multitudes like the rest of us and ditto his poetry. You know, you wrote in the Times earlier this week, again in the paper tomorrow, that tracing his poetry from the sort of immature early work, you know, obsessed with sort of girls' schools and sort of adolescent peacocking to much later where he, you know, does masterpieces like the Whitsun Weddings and Orbard. Um, 
you know, he he changed immensely over the course of uh, over the course of the decades. Yeah, and I think you can't read his poetry and not think that he was an incredibly humane and charming person. I mean, yeah, he was. There were, there were two sides to him. He was evidently a very in his own kind of weird, quiet, you know, slightly gloomy way, a very charismatic, very charming person. That coexisted with the horrible views. I mean, I think the thing that Daljit said earlier about his political beliefs is what they were very naive and very unsophisticated. He himself said when he was asked about his politics, he would quite freely say that he didn't, you know, he hadn't thought about it much. And I think were he had been were he to have been made to think about it, you kind of hope he would have arrived at uh, different conclusions. But you know, for for Larkin, and this I think kind of became a bit of a problem towards the end of his life. That persona, the Hermit of Hull, the gloom, the, the con- extreme the contempt pessimism. for you know the cushy London literary the consensus. contempt for London. Everything was kind of subordinated to that persona, and eventually, that kind of included politics. And he could only express the political views. I think that basically would be expressed by the Larkin persona, which had become such a kind of mask by the end of his life. Yeah, yeah. a phrase you used offer that I hope you don't mind me quoting back at you is that he was into owning the libs before it was uh, fashionable or the internet existed. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, this is one of the kind of... Um, when people are defending the kind of dodgy stuff in the letters, they'll say, oh, it was a bit of a performance. It was a kind of trolling of the sensibilities of you know, kind of, I, I guess, kind of more liberal, the more liberal li- li- literary types. And again, this is to do with this kind of poetic persona, which a lot of it was rejecting the kind of previous ideas of what it had been to be a poet, which to be, you know, politically idealistic, a sort of um, exciting, individualist, romantic person. And he sort of, kind of part of the genius of the poetry and part of the horror of the personal life is that he just rejected all of that and was, you know, as provincial and as sort of dull and as gloomy as he could make himself as a kind of rejection of everything that poetry had been before, which I think he viewed as, you know, in need of kind of overthrowing for its kind of pretension and fakery, I think he'd have thought. Well, sadly, we have run out of time. I could really speak about this all day. Uh, That was James Marriott, columnist and literary expert at The Times, and Daljit Nagra, chair of the Royal Society of Literature. Thanks very much for joining us to talk about Philip Larkin on his centenary and his contested political legacy. That's all we got time for on the Redbox Politics Podcast. Thank you for listening to me over the past two weeks. Matt's back on Monday, but make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your pods from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.